By this time, law enforcement from the entire region were descending on Cisco to find the murderous Santa and his crew. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Last week, we picked up part one of our Odds and Ends show. And this week, we're going to come back and tell you about some of the other smaller stories that we've been wanting to tell in a, a nice anthology episode. But first, what's your favorite sci-fi movie set or filmed in Texas? Well, I'll go first. I was going to say Logan's Run, where the city of Las Colinas managed to dub <laughs> double for the future... <laughs> uh, and uh, and Michael York was in it, and it was a weird movie. But I'm actually going to go with the sci-fi movie set in and filmed in Texas, and it we talked about it on our movies episode. It's a probably Z-grade movie uh, called I Come in Peace, starring Dolph Lundgren and Brian Binbin, and it's set in Houston. Um, and Dolph Lundgren is a space cop who comes to Houston uh, chasing after an intergalactic serial killer of some kind. But uh, it's set in Houston in the early 90s, and it's full of, oh full of fun Houston stuff. Yeah, it's one of those things we you saw in the video store, like, <laughs> yeah. what past. I or, come in peace. Or, or at, like, 3 a.m. on Showtime. Kind of in the same vein, I'm going to say, and we talked about this in our Texas movie episode, but I'm going to go with RoboCop. Actually, RoboCop and RoboCop 2. Uh, RoboCop 1, uh, the city of Dallas, particularly the City Hall in Dallas, stood in for uh, future Detroit. And uh, in RoboCop 2, Houston stood in for <laughs> Detroit. So um, both of those movies were shot in Texas, even though they weren't set here. And uh, I just remember that as a kid, thinking that was cool that they shot this uh, these major movies in uh, our home state. I'm going to go with a little bit of some hard sci-fi the often studied and little understood Primer by Shane Carruth. Now, I'm a sucker for a time travel movie, and this is a real tough one. I mean, you need to get out your notebook and pencil and really make some notes to understand how these uh, how this very complicated movie is layered. But uh, it's a great, super indie, low-budget film, but uh, it's, yeah, I enjoyed the heck out of it, and uh, he's, a, he's a great talent. Fellow UTD alumni, I believe. Believe so, yes. Yeah. So, whoosh. Whoosh for the comets. Whoosh. A few weeks ago, we talked about the cattle industry in Texas and how the 1880s saw the industry transition from cattle drives to large ranches. We also talked about the influx of foreign investors into the ranching industry in the panhandle, with the ultimate example being the XIT Ranch, which paid for the current Capitol building in Austin as well as the Rocking Chair Ranch, which was owned by the Scottish nobleman, the Baron Tweedmouth. But what we didn't talk about was an unusual consequence of that transition that occurred in 1883 in the Panhandle when the cowboys went on strike. In the old days of the cattle drives, cowboys had a pretty good life. The average monthly wage in the 1870s was around $30. However, this wasn't so bad for most cowboys. They rarely were tied down to needing homes or families, since many of them lived out of their saddlebags for most of the year. It was also customary for ranchers to give cowboys in a drive 
a few calves for their own use or sale at the end of the drive. In addition, since the cowboys were contracted to drive a certain number of head of cattle, they could round up maverick or wild cattle on their own to be included in the drive. Even in the ranching days, cowboys without land of their own could run small herds on the boss's ranges. A smart cowboy could make a good amount of money this way. Many a future Texas rancher, including Charles Goodnight, got their start this way. When the days of the cattle drive came to an end, and the industry began to be run by absentee businessmen, this kind of nonsense just didn't make good business sense. Extra calves and mavericks on their own land were part of their property, and you don't give that away to the help. Cowboys were paid the same wages, but now had to also pay for room and board at the ranches. There was no opportunity for any up-by-the-bootstrap mobility for these hard-working cowboys. Very quickly, resentment and anger started bubbling to the surface, and in 1883, a group of cowboys began a two-and-a-half-month strike against five ranches, the LIT, the LX, the LS, the LE, and the T-Anchor. The cowboys asked for a raise to $50 a month with the same wage for a, quote, good cook. Range bosses would get $75. The strikers, led by Tom Harris of the LS Ranch, hoped that their actions would disrupt the spring roundup and bring the owners to the bargaining table. Newspapers from as far away as Colorado covered the dispute and ate up the story. They reported that the strikers planned fence burnings, attacks on ranchers, and indiscriminate killing of cattle. The Weekly Examiner out of Trinidad, Colorado said, An ordinary cowboy is as dangerous as a nitroglycerin bomb, and a good deal more dangerous. The Texas Livestock Journal argued that some cowboys were worth, quote, almost any money as faithful servants, and these cowboys were entitled to all that a ranchman could afford to pay. But the journal indicated that the owners were the best and fairest judges of what they actually could afford. In the end, the strike wasn't a resounding success. The numbers involved ranged from around 30 to 325, depending on who you ask, when you asked, and who was involved. And this number changed as men joined and deserted the walkout. The ranchers themselves took different approaches to the strike. The T-Anchor and LE fired the strikers on the spot. The LS and LIT offered a slight wage increase, and then they fired the ones who didn't take it. Owners and management of all five ranches hired replacement scabs to work the spring roundup, many of which who were actually the fired strikers who asked to come back to work. Afterwards, the only effect seemed to have been an uptick in rustling in the area. Some large and infamous gunfights in Tuscosa, which was a town in the area, may have originated in the festering and animosity from the strike. It was a sad blow to the image and prestige of the legendary Texas cowboy, although time would eventually see the cowboys as the winner in our cultural identity. After all, um, there aren't any film genres and professional football teams inspired by absentee ranch owners, are there? In the end, the strike wasn't a resounding success. The numbers involved ranged from 30 to 325, depending on who you ask and when you asked and who was involved. This number changed as men joined or deserted the walkout. The ranchers themselves took different approaches to the strike. The T-Anchor and the LE fired the strikers on the spot. The LS and LIT offered a slight wage increase, but they fired the ones who wouldn't take it. Owners and management of all five ranches hired replacement scabs to work the spring roundup, many of whom were actually fired strikers asking to come back to work. 
Afterwards, the only real effect seemed to have been an uptick in rustling in the area, and there were some large and infamous gunfights in Tuscosa, which was a town in the area, that may have originated in festering animosity from the strike. It was a sad blow to the image and prestige of the legendary Texas cowboy, although time would eventually see the cowboys as the winner in our cultural identity. After all, there aren't any film genres or professional football teams inspired by absentee ranch owners, right? How about the uh, the Dallas Tweedmouths? <laughs> oh. hmm. So, on one of our early episodes, we talked about the long and wild history of professional wrestling in Texas. One of the legendary Lone Star grapplers we didn't talk about is from the very earliest era of professional wrestling and is best remembered today for his heroic conviction and tragic death rather than his in-ring career. Elmer Brown was born in 1887 and grew up in the central Texas town of Taylor where he and his brothers learned how to grapple from his dad. Brown, who was nicknamed Pet, was a natural and soon became an expert at the art of catch-as-catch-can wrestling, a submission style that is the foundation for modern freestyle and professional wrestling, as well as mixed martial arts. In those days, wrestling was as real as it could get, meaning at the time, matches were generally not predetermined. Pet Brown was remarkable even for his day. It was said that he had a marvel of endurance, tenacity, and strength, to the point that traveling carnival wrestlers bypassed Taylor, knowing that there was a boy there who could whip every one of them. Pet won his first championship at the age of 21 in 1909 when he won the Texas title, defeating Jim Downing. Pet wasn't a huge guy, standing 5'11 and weighing 160, but he was remarkably strong and could easily go the distance in a time when matches would routinely last several hours. By 1914, Brown became the world middleweight champion. He mostly stayed in Texas, but he became highly respected throughout the country as the best wrestler in his weight class in the world. In 1916, future World Light heavyweight John Colonis declared he'd pay $100 to anyone that could produce a challenger that he refused to wrestle, with one exception. Quote, I bar no one except Pet Brown of Texas. I take my hat off to him. A San Antonio sports writer wrote about meeting Brown before a big match. He said, This piece of triple distilled energy has a lunch hook with a grip like a vice. I didn't need anyone to tell me he was in condition to put up the bout of his life. I knew it when that number 12 hand of his closed over mine in his hearty greeting. Brown finally met his match in 1917 when he wrestled a Wyoming rancher named Clarence Eklund. After 500 matches, Brown was finally defeated in Houston when he tore several ligaments in his arm trying to escape from a hold. Two months later, the two met again, and again Brown lost. Pet returned home to Taylor, and though he still wrestled for a few years in the area, he mostly focused on building up a road construction business. Cars were everywhere now, and good solid roads were needed. He started up his business with four mules and a few local laborers, and soon expanded to several crews with packs of 40 to 50 mules. His labor pool consisted mostly of local black residents, as well as convicts. However, Pet was a different boss than most of his contemporaries at the time. He treated all of his workers fairly and without any prejudice. One of his wrestling friends, a man named White Nobles, also worked for him as a crew foreman. White Nobles was one of the few African-American wrestlers in Texas. In 1923, Brown was supervising a project in the North Texas town of Cisco, 
and he had an altercation with a local constable named L.J. Sharkey. It was common practice at the time for local law enforcement to come around the work camp and shake down the black laborers for money. There was little that can be done in this deeply Jim Crow era. Sharkey came to the camp stating he intended to arrest some of Brown's workers for shooting craps. Brown knew this was a shakedown, and he confronted Sharkey about it. He told Sharkey he'd be happy to pay the fines, but that the constable wasn't arresting anyone that day. Stories vary about what happened next. Some eyewitnesses reported that Brown reached for Sharkey's arm to escort him off the worksite. Sharkey drew his pistol and shot Brown through the heart. Other eyewitnesses said that Brown turned away from Sharkey after telling him to leave, and Sharkey shot him in the back. A local grand jury later acquitted Sharkey of murder, but the town of Taylor was devastated nonetheless. Over 1,000 people gathered for Brown's memorial service, and the entire state was appalled at this miscarriage of justice. The Wrestling News, a national magazine from the period, eulogized Brown, saying, Pet Brown was for years, without doubt, the most popular wrestler in the South and Southwest, and all through the state of Texas, he was the idol of the fans. Our next story, by coincidence, also comes from the town of Cisco, Texas. Who knew? And this, too, is a tale of infamy and murder. There's also an interesting Christmas twist. On December 23, 1927, just four years after the death of Pet Brown, a gang of men led by Santa Claus robbed a bank and set off one of the largest manhunts in Texas history. It is one of the most astonishing stories of infamy and ineptitude in the history of crime. Marshall Ratliff was a petty criminal from Cisco, a modest-sized ranching town between Fort Worth and Abilene that's generally most famous for being where the Hilton Hotel chain got its start. Ratliff had recently gotten out of jail for a previous bank robbery, for which he had just served one year before being pardoned by Texas Governor Miriam Ma Ferguson. Hmm, Ma Ferguson. We'll talk about her later. Ratliff apparently hadn't learned his lesson, so he and his brother Lee planned to hit the bank in their hometown of Cisco. That's smart. Lee got arrested, though, for something else, so Marshall pulled in three guys that he knew from prison in Huntsville to help him with the job. As they planned their crime, the safecracker came down with the flu. Ratliff, along with Robert Hill and Henry Helms, recruited Helms' cousin Louis Davis to help them. Davis wasn't a criminal, but his family was in dire financial straits, and the promise of a large cut of the money enticed him into joining the gang. They planned on hitting the First National Bank of Cisco a few days before Christmas, when they knew it would be flushed with cash. Since Ratliff knew he'd be recognized by the locals, he decided that he needed a disguise. And what better disguise for that time of year than a Santa Claus suit? This would be the first of many mistakes that Ratliff made. He wasn't exactly a criminal mastermind. After stealing a car in Wichita Falls, the gang drove the two hours that it took to get to Cisco. Ratliff got out of the car on Main Street while the drivers parked it in the alley by the bank. At first, the disguise worked. Nobody thought twice about a man walking around in broad daylight in a Santa suit. Nobody except the children who were doing their Christmas shopping with their parents. As the foreman walked towards the bank, Ratliff had a trail of children following behind him, hoping to tell him just what they wanted for Christmas. When the men entered the bank, Ratliff ignored the cheery greeting from the cashier of, Hello, Santa! Instead, the other men pulled out their guns and yelled, Stick em up! Just as they did so, 
A Mrs. B.P. Blassengame and her six-year-old daughter Frances entered the bank, hoping to let Santa entered the bank, hoping to let Frances speak with Santa. Seeing three armed men standing next to quote Santa, sent Frances into hysterics. They're going to shoot Santa Claus. They're going to shoot him. She yelled. Mrs. Blassingame, realizing what was happening, grabbed Frances and rushed past the robbers through the bookkeeping office and out the back door. She ran across the street to City Hall and told them the bank was being robbed. One of the bandits tried to stop Blassingame, but they weren't able to do so. Acting quickly, Ratliff and his men went into the cashier's cage and began pulling cash out of the drawers and money and bonds out of the safe. Ratliff, who was unarmed, also grabbed a pistol from under the bank counter. As the robbers were going about their business, Police Chief G.E. Bitt Bedford was organizing a response. He'd been the man who'd arrested Ratliff for the previous bank robbery and was a legend of a man in these parts. He grabbed a shotgun and ordered his deputies to set up positions in the alleys on either side of the bank. They'd catch the robbers in a crossfire as they tried to get away. What neither the robbers nor the police accounted for, though, was the response of the town citizens. At the time in Texas, there were an average of 10 to 15 bank robberies a day throughout the state. As a result, the Texas Bankers Association had announced a reward of $5,000 to anyone who killed a bank robber during the crime. As soon as word got out to the town that there was a bank robbery in progress, city officials and citizens rushed over to the hardware store where clerks passed out rifles and shotguns to anybody who wanted one. Soon a mob of armed citizens were headed towards the bank. Nobody's sure who fired the first shot. Some accounts have Ratliff shooting out the bank's plate glass window. Others point to Hill, who witnesses say thought he saw someone outside the window. It may have been the first of the mob to arrive that he shot at. As soon as the shooting started, though, both the police and civilians began shooting it out with the bank robbers. Several of the hostages and bank employees were wounded, as was one of the robbers. Chief Bedford and one of his deputies were also mortally wounded. Ratliff grabbed two little girls who were in the bank, Laverne Corner and Emma May Robinson, and used them as shields to get out to their getaway car. However, it wasn't going to go easy for Ratliff and his gang. Since they'd driven several hours to get to Cisco, they'd forgotten to fill up the tank in their car, and now it was nearly empty. Still being pursued by the outraged citizens, they flagged down the driver of a brand new Oldsmobile, 14-year-old Woody Harris. They forced his frightened family out of the car and climbed in, but they failed to notice that Harris had palmed the key to the car. Ratliff had to order his gang back into the other car. Davis, who'd been mortally wounded by a shotgun blast, was left in the Oldsmobile. Several blocks later, Ratliff realized he also managed to leave all of their stolen money, $12,000 in cash, and $150,000 in securities with Davis in the Oldsmobile. Ratliff and his wounded partners managed to make it two miles outside of town where they abandoned their car and their hostages. Unfortunately for him, he took off his Santa outfit and, just as he'd feared, 12-year-old Laverne Cormer did in fact recognize him. The robbers commandeered another vehicle and drove around in the country all night. Amazingly, they went back into Cisco that night to steal another car. They again took off into the plains, but this time they ran into a vicious blizzard. By this time, law enforcement from the entire region were descending on Cisco to find the murderous Santa and his crew. 
Reporter Boyce House wrote, quote, Officers and citizens poured in from all that section of the state, and such a manhunt as western Texas had never seen before was soon in progress. Many members of the posse were on horseback or on foot as they beat their way through clumps of trees, searched high grass in the bottoms of ravines, and peered around boulders and canyons. Ratliff and his men were finally caught by the law in an oil field near the town of Graham, just north of Cisco. Ratliff was wounded and captured after an intense shootout with the sheriff and future Texas Ranger Cy Bradford. Helms and Hill tried to escape into the woods by the Brazos River, but were eventually caught trying to find a rooming house in Graham that night. They were taken to jail, and all three men were tried for murder and bank robbery. Hill got off the lightest. He was sentenced to 99 years in prison. He tried to escape three times, but finally settled down and eventually was paroled and became a productive citizen. Helms was identified as the man who shot Chief Bedford and his deputy and was executed by the electric chair in Huntsville in 1929. Ratliff, the leader, and of course, Santa Claus, was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Laverne Cormer and Emma May Robinson's testimony is credited as being the key to convicting Ratliff. He failed to be convicted of murder because nobody could testify that he'd fire his gun at the bank robbery. He tried to get out of his conviction by acting crazy, but in the meantime, the citizens of Eastland County, furious that he'd gotten off so light, had him extradited back to Eastland to be tried for the attempted theft of Woody Harris's car. While he was in the Eastland County Jail, Ratliff tried to escape, killing one of his jailers in the attempt. The next night, on November 19, 1928, an enraged mob broke into the jail and lynched Ratliff just outside a local theater. It is considered by some to be the last mob lynching of Texas history. Of Santa Claus. <laughs> Definitely of Santa Claus. <laughs> and that is why you didn't get what you asked for this year. Yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't for all the people killed, that would be just the most amazing comical story ever. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, I could see, like, it, this seems like a, a wistful, like, Coen Brothers film. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, except, except for the mayhem, yeah, yeah, except for the mayhem and death. Um, it, it's amazing. I didn't know that Cisco had this much going on. I, I, I went there in junior high for a four, five day long basketball camp uh, at the junior college there, a community college there, and yeah, I thought it was a pretty dull place. But apparently, in nineteen twenties, there was there was a lot of stuff going on. I think we learned from this that uh, a lot of times criminals are dumb. Yeah. And and didn't just the the bad planning mixed with bad luck mixed with like Texas justice just seems like a a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, th- this is a crazy story, man. And it's the the image of children following this bank robbing Santa Claus into a bank. <laughs> Santa, please. I smell an Oscar for Bill Murray here. I think yeah. we really need to get Hollywood on the line to listen to our show. Yeah. And then uh, the Pat Brown story, I'd I'd actually read in an, in a book uh, about uh, professional wrestling, early days of professional wrestling, and it just struck me that he was from Texas, and and he he had such an interesting and enlightened uh, perspective on uh, on race and uh, on. Uh, uh, yeah, on race at the time when when people definitely did not mix and intermingle and did not employ, uh, you know, 
black people in, in any meaningful way or try to protect them or stand up for them. So that's that's a pretty astonishing story there. Well, yeah. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Is just like the, uh, bef- I mean, his his death is tragic, and sad. Um, and it's nice to see that who's memorialized. But man, what a life this guy had! Though, like this this youthful wrestling, just to to have this kind of magical strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could could lock on a hold for three hours and, and hold it. You know, I mean, he he tore out the ligaments of his arm trying to break out of a leg hold. Uh, that the guy had wrapped his legs around his body and he was trying to force his way out and he nearly did it. And he, he actually ripped ligaments trying to force his way out. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Back, back when wrestling was real, kids. That, that, yeah. yeah. If, if, if you're out there and you, uh, I, I want to say this, with all due respect, if you're out there and you say, I remember when wrestling was real, I do have this to say. If you don't remember Woodrow Wilson being president, then you don't remember wrestling <laughs> yeah. being real. Do you have a pair of high-button shoes in your closet? <laughs> yeah. Then you might know a little about real wrestling. Did, yeah. you call, now, did he call the ruler of Germany the Kaiser? Because then— yeah. Now, I, I don't mean to besmirch the uh, the phenomenon that is professional wrestling because it. when I say it's not real, I just mean that it used to be an actual contest of wrestling yes. um, like— we treat, you know, mixed martial arts and boxing still mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Um, today, professional wrestling, of course, is more of a performance, more of a pageant. We've talked about that in the past too. But man, back in the day, those those were some real tough dudes. Well, that, this uh, is that you really, know, you know, put themselves up to uh, mm-hmm. a contest of of strength. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the the neat thing about this kind of time is there's this vaudevillian affair of things would come to town and then locals would test their metal, and it could be. Uh, you know, there's these traveling wrestling matches were quite common. There was the the shooting um exhibitions, you know. I mean, that's the the scene from um, oh, the scene from The Natural where they they do the baseball contest in the town right. with the with the traveling, you know. There's this it there's this vaudevillian era of like somebody famous might come to your town, and then you could you know try to try to beat them, <laughs> try to right. beat them at what they're famous for. Right. That's how we treated celebrities back then. This is before well, Instagram. Right. And, and the thing was, is that, <laughs> is that the promoters of the day would then, if somebody did like Pat Brown would whip the, the carnival shooter that came to town, you know, shooter is a wrestler who really can wrestle and can really hurt people. Mm-hmm. If they could whip them, then oh, that's money right there. Let me get this fellow in. And that's how many famous wrestling champions, you know, Frank Gotch was that way as a the legendary wrestler at the at that time, uh, heavyweight champion was discovered that way. He could he could beat the carnival guys. So you know, Pet Brown was a, you know he's a smaller guy. He wasn't he wasn't like Hulk Hogan. He wasn't six foot eight, six foot nine, and three hundred pounds. He was he was a normal sized person, but you know he could he could he could rip, he could rip you apart. You know, he just if, had if he got a hold of you. Yeah, he just sounds like one of those people you meet. You meet certain people who are just inexplainably, indelibly strong. They're just yeah. strong, and you're like, yeah. "How are you so strong?" Like, just they just are. They have like hands like baseball mitts, and they just are are incredibly crazy. And the guy talked about that in in that quote of shaking his hand. Yeah. Um, and in, actually, the interesting thing is that Sharky, Sheriff Sharky, or the Constable Sharky, said, you know, his defense was that that. Brown grabbed him by the arm and he feared for his life and the the, the, the jury bought it that 
in in some way, if Brown did grab him and wanted to break him apart, he could. Well, these hands are lethal weapons. Yeah, I've always wanted to say that. Um, you know what? And, and let's take it back to the to the very beginning. Uh, I can't imagine like a picket line of like cowboys on horseback with their signs, <laughs> marching their horses in a circle, chanting. Yeah. No, I mean um, that it's so interesting because I would you would never think about the idea of like uh, cowboys on strike. <laughs> well, yeah, and and you know they. I mean, they they get paid millions of dollars to throw a piece of leather around yeah, exactly. the field. I mean, why would they strike? <laughs> no, not the, not those cowboys. Real oh, cowboys. Sorry, real no. cowboys. Yeah, I mean it's and and especially in that time period seems kind of an oddity. Yeah, I, I like the idea that also you know a good cook should be able to get fifty dollars a day too. Cookie. Well, yeah, I mean, an an army moves on his stomach. Why yeah. wouldn't a cattle drive as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing is that when the cattle drive went away, there's there's unintended consequences to that cattle drive part of the industry disappearing. And one mm-hmm. of those is is that all of a sudden, if you want to, you know, if you want to work, you got to, you know, at a ranch, you got to live somewhere, and you got to pay for your your room and board. And yeah, if the ranchers well, don't raise that, don't raise the living. Well, it's yeah. it's. It just shows the transformation of the industry. Of it, it went from a kind of a green field, you know, pun, no pun intended, a green field industry, to this institution. And mm-hmm. you know, we talked in um, back in the Fracas of Daily Philip Dailyville episode about uh, uh, you know Butler, and he was just a tough guy. Came back from the Civil War, and and he just started, you know, moving cattle. And that, and he just, and then he took the money he made, he reinvested it, he got more cattle, he got more cattle, he kept growing it, and that's was the, you know, it was a growth industry where there was room for people to sort of, you could just kind of, you know, scrap your way into the game, and once it became an institution, it was like, well, now you're just employees. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So now we're just. Punching Google cattles. Yeah, and it wasn't even it wasn't even necessarily people that own you know Texans that own land in Texas that were making these decisions. It was people maybe even an ocean away that didn't have didn't care about the people that were there. They just they just cared about it was dollars and cents. It was the bottom line. Yep. Well, you can't be in Texas and not think about cows and cowboys. <laughs> Uh, anything else? Nope. Just interesting stories. We just wanted to yeah. bring up, bring some interesting stories and, and share them with you that we'd seen. And, you know, it's not, maybe not a half hour each that we could, we could pull out, but it is yeah. good stories to share. Good stuff. That's good stuff about Texas. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like the show and share us on Facebook Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaw with two ends. And I am Scotticus. We know you love this show. We know you love crazy history tales of Texas. So get out there and do your duty. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. Tell a cow you meet on the side of the road while you're on strike. 
And go and leave that review on iTunes because it helps us to find people just like you. And if you really want to support the show financially, go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast and you too can become a come and take it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>